When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The parties are divided in terms of the effect that the stimulus is going to have. This inflation debate has really been heating up the effect of what the Biden administration is spending on political capital. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. A group of centrists are the key senators to watch. Joe Biden, his number one focus in addition to the COVID health crisis is jobs. I don't think we have red roads and blue roads, and that's the way we're looking at this. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says she wants to work with Congress on ways to ease state and local tax deductions caps. We're going to talk all about her testimony in which she uh, testified before Congress earlier today. Plus, gun control debate back in the spotlight uh, following that horrific shooting in Colorado. We'll bring you the latest on that front as well. And... Congressman French Hill, Republican from Arkansas, joins us to break down all news of the day and the star of my favorite Netflix documentary right now, The Last Blockbuster. We're heading out to Bend, Oregon, where the last blockbuster in the world is located. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Uh, a breaking news headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Intel new business direct competition for TSMC as well as Samsung. Fresh off of that news that they are developing plants in Arizona. Uh, again, that headline uh, just uh, crossing the Bloomberg terminal as uh they are driving some new plants that they're going to create in the state of Arizona. We begin tonight with another developing story, and that was the testimony from Fed Chairman Jay Powell on Capitol Hill, as well as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Let's start there with sound on the economy and the status of the recovery from Secretary Yellen. Here's the sound of the recovery from the Treasury Secretary. Well, we're seeing signs of recovery we should be clear-eyed about the hole we're digging out of. The country is still down nearly 10 million jobs from its pre-pandemic peak. We're going to be monitoring that story in the upcoming uh, segment with Congressman French Hill, who is a member of the Financial Services Committee. He is a Republican uh, from uh, Arkansas. Washington now finds itself in the midst of another debate around gun control. 
So we've got the all-star policy panel with us, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributors. President Biden urged lawmakers to pass gun control measures, including background checks and a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines a day after a shooting at Colorado's supermarket killed 10 people. Here's the sound on the shooting from President Joe Biden. This is not, it should not be a partisan issue. This is an American issue. It will save lives, American lives, and we have to act. The Senate should immediately pass, let me say it again, the United States Senate, I hope some are listening, should immediately pass the two House pass bills that close loopholes in the background check system. Meanwhile, Senator Mitch McConnell, the top Republican in the Senate, uh, said that passing gun control legislation and sending it to him uh, for a signature. But while the Democratic majority in the House has moved forward, the Senate faces a real challenge with the narrowest of majorities. And Leader McConnell told the press earlier today that he's open to talks, but he is not in favor of what the House passed. Take a listen to the sound on this from Leader McConnell. What I'm not attracted to is something that doesn't work. And there have been deep-seated philosophical differences between Republicans and Democrats about how to deal with gun violence. Let's first start with Rick Davis in terms of the policy angle on this. Clearly a heated topic, clearly a heated uh, debate, but in terms of practicality, it's very unlikely that the Senate would be able to pass what the House has done. Yeah, uh, I think you're right. Um Kevin, but I would say that the one area where there's been some Republicans willing to support Democratic bills have been around these background checks. Um, my history, John McCain, we we almost passed one in the Senate uh, in 2004. Uh, John McCain inspired bill, gun show loophole. Uh, the the Charleston loophole, which has become sort of the new phrase, is in uh, closing that is in one of the bills in the House, and and it got Republican support in the House and. And so I think you're not looking for, you know, 20 votes with Republicans in the Senate to pass a, a loophole bill, a background check bill. Um, but if you could get three or four, and that, those votes are probably available in the United States Senate for, for closing this, this Charleston loophole. One of those senators, no doubt, will be Senator Pat Toomey, a Republican from Pennsylvania who is not seeking reelection. Uh, after the Sandy Hook shooting, he, along with centrist Democrat Joe Manchin, uh, passed a bipartisan piece of legislation that ultimately was not able to end up now on former President Barack Obama's desk. Jeannie, Monday's attack was the seventh mass killing this year in the United States, according to a database compiled by AP USA Today and Northeastern University. Practically, in addition to Senator Toomey, who are some of the other swing votes in the Senate? Um I think we may see swing votes on some measure as, you know, Rick and you were just talking about in terms of something like loopholes. Um, so we may see some ground there to maneuver, but I think we have to be realistic. And I, I, I don't I hate to be very pessimistic, but having done this and been on the air so many times as you and Rick have, and I think in particular, you just mentioned Obama, you know, after Sandy Hook, when those 25 babies were killed with their teachers and nothing was done. And so I feel like it's a horrible case of deja vu all over again. We always feel 
mildly optimistic that something's got to happen after these two horrific killings in a matter of a week in Georgia and then in Colorado. And yet I'm not confident we're going to get much of anything out of a Senate that's split 50-50 because, of course, you're going to need the 10 votes that Rick is talking about. And I struggle to find where those would come from. You know, Mitch McConnell saying he is open to something. I think that the politics of this are so difficult that I'm not sure we get a bill. So I, I, I'm not optimistic. On I this recognize point. that this is a very heated conversation. I do want to contribute to what I feel could be a direction this discussion in Washington takes that has further reaching implications beyond just this subject material, and that is the filibuster. You mentioned, Jeannie, the, that there would need to be a significant number of Democrats in order to get uh, beyond the filibuster, and that, that appears to be an uphill battle uh, given the current uh, political uh, math in the Senate and the upper chamber. However, th this could amplify calls, as, for, as President Biden said in his recent interview to ABC News on uh, to George Stephanopoulos, Rick, uh, that that he wants to bring back some type of old school filibuster reform without injecting opinion. Do you agree that this could bring back up the topic for filibuster reform and that that could have far reaching implications on other policy areas? Yeah, no doubt that uh, we're seeing a pinch in the legislative calendar where the filibuster will start to affect legislation. And and it's going to be incumbent upon um Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, to to broker that opening because he's the one who's already agreed uh, with minority leader Mitch McConnell for a uh, continuation of the filibuster rule. So if anybody's going to put it on the table, it's going to have to be Schumer. And I can't imagine a scenario where he could get a deal uh, to move forward on this with Mitch McConnell uh, under any circumstance. Jeannie, and we should note that uh, former President Trump actually did enact some uh, changes to to current gun control laws, uh, and was criticized for it. In fact, he was on the opposite side of the NRA, which is we should also note in a very different economic footing on very different economic footing than it was even just a couple of years ago. He did, and and of course he remained by the same token close to the NRA, mm -hmm. and um, you know, and obviously the NRA has its own issues apart from this at this point. You know, just back to the filibuster issue for a minute. One of the problems I think here is that, you know, Joe Manchin, I don't think has been particularly clear, at least in my reading of what he's saying on what he would like to do vis-a-vis -vis the filibuster. Similarly, Joe Biden, um, you know, he's expressed as you, more support for moving forward, but I'm not so sure it's it's enough. And I am not comfortable at all with the idea that we would have any sort of major filibuster reform unless it's maybe a carve out, which I can't imagine they have the votes for. So I don't see filibuster reform in a 50-50 split Senate myself. And just back to the, 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 the shootings, let's not forget, we have had nine of the 10 deadliest shootings in American history since the early 1980s. The crisis has gotten worse, and Congress has been unable to act to pass any kind of sustainable, meaningful, common sense gun control. I'm not sure what happened yesterday, unfortunately, is going to change that. Again, just uh, the seventh mass killing this year in the United States. I, I, I do think uh, folks, that we are going to be hearing a lot more about filibuster. I think Democrats are going to come out particularly strong, uh, progressives in particular, on trying to get rid of the filibuster, and that will ignite a very partisan debate, um, one that Republicans are adamantly against. They feel that the filibuster provides a check and a balance uh, and keeps the Senate um, 
keeps the Senate uh, at, moving at a slower pace and, and, and more seniority uh, than the than the House of Representatives. So definitely something that I will be keeping my eye on. And just as a disclaimer, Michael Bloomberg, owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News, is a founder of and helps fund Every Town for Gun Safety, a nonprofit that advocates for gun violence prevention and other gun safety measures. Coming up, we pivot back to financial policy. Congressman French Hill, a member of the Financial Services Committee, joins us. He's from Arkansas. He heard from the top people today on economics. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by the all-star policy team, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. You know, my favorite question to ask people is when I'm when I'm getting mic'd up in the Russell Rotunda or the Canon Rotunda, where we do all of our live shots on Capitol Hill. Rick, you know what I ask people? No, what do you ask people? <laughs> that, that was an easy question, Rick. There we go. Uh, what are you streaming on Netflix? You know what Senator Warren told me once? You ready for this? What do you think she streams on Netflix? Any guesses? Jeannie, Rick, Bueller? Oh, this is a hard one, Kevin Cirilli. Oh, Elizabeth Warren, I have no good quick answer for ballers. this. Ballers. She watches ballers. I kid you not. You she's, are kidding. She's obsessed with ballers. So no. Anyway, I was watching. <laughs> I was going to uh, say Deuce Bigelow since we're doing. <laughs> I would have never picked that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Kev, keep it together, buddy. All right. Um, I, over the... <laughs> Rick, uh, over the weekend, I was watching uh, The Last Blockbuster, which I cannot recommend enough. I, I texted uh, our indefatigable executive producer and our other producer, Matt Shirley and Christine Barada, a reverse order there. And um, I said, you have to watch this. It's incredible. It's about economics and how technological access and 5G access and Internet access passed over uh, this rural community in, in Oregon called Bend, Oregon. And I, I, and next thing I know, we've got the, the manager of the last ever existing brick and mortar blockbuster video on our show at the end. I'm so excited for this interview and I can't wait to hear it. Uh, it's an example of American capitalism and hustle and this weird loophole that happens when uh, access to technology development passes over a small town. So I'm excited for that interview. I've been really looking forward to it all day. Another interview that I have uh, to look forward to is Congressman French Hill. He is a Republican from Arkansas. He is a member of the House Financial Services Committee, where, of course, uh, Treasury Secretary uh, Janet Yellen uh, testified earlier today. And let's first, Congressman, get your assessment on how the hearing went and what information you gleaned uh, for the direction of the economy. 
Well, Kevin, it's good to be with you. That was quite a segue. Happy to be with uh, Rick and Janet as well. Uh, we were glad to have Jay Powell and Janet Yellen come to House Financial Services today to talk about oversight of the CARES Act. Uh, both were encouraging about the economy reopening. That's something that all Americans share. I spent my time talking to Janet Yellen about why the Biden administration is pushing to send $40 billion to China, $17 billion to Russia, $5 billion each to Venezuela and Iran, and even $390 million to Syria. This is Janet Yellen's strategy to supposedly help in the pandemic, but instead they're shipping IMF, International Monetary Fund Resources, to some of the worst rogue states in the world. So what did she say? She said, well, you know, we need to have rules around that. We want to work on that. We want to limit their ability. But my reading of how the IMF works, Kevin, is you don't get to put any rules. If you do what's called a allocation of special drawing rights, SDRs, it goes to every country uh, just across the allocation on a pro rata basis. You don't get to have strings attached. And I don't think we should be giving hard currency to big creditor countries or to rogue states without strings attached. It's definitely a different direction from the previous administration, especially in terms of international allocation. Let's take a listen to some sound on the uh, broader state of implementing the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package uh, from Secretary Yellen. Take a listen to the sound on that. With the passage of the rescue plan, I'm confident that people will reach the other side of this pandemic with the foundations of their lives intact. And I believe they'll be met there by a growing economy. In fact, I think we may see a return to full employment next year. Congressman Hill, you, of course, were one of the bipartisan group of lawmakers who helped provide oversight over the previous round of economic stimulus. I can remember talking to you both on and offline about that. Are you confident that there's enough oversight, that there's enough transparency on this round of mass amount of money, nearly $2 trillion, to make sure the taxpayers' money is being well allocated? I would say no. There's no oversight of this oh, wow. $1.9 trillion compared to the CARES Act, where there were belt and suspender oversights. We had new uh, GAO reports. We had more inspectors general. We had the CARES Oversight Commission, which I still serve on. We had the oversight committees of Congress all carefully stewarding that uh, nearly $3.8 trillion of spending in 2020. Amazingly, this one, uh, $1.9 trillion, doesn't have the same uh, scrutiny uh, that the CARES Act does. House Republicans are going to be pushing for scrutiny, but we won't have some of the levers that we had in the CARES Act. Congressman, this is Rick Davis. Thanks for being on. And uh, you must have been a fascinating day today with both uh, the first time uh, Chairman Powell and Secretary Yellen uh, were seated together in front of your committee. Uh, I'm curious your reaction to uh, Secretary Yellen's comments about the deficit. Um, I know that there were a lot of questions about whether or not uh, we're creating a, uh, a hole we can't dig out of. And I think her comments were basically, hey, look, you know, the service cost of this is no worse than it was in 2007, so why not spend? Uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, I, I think she – sometimes you stand – where you stand depends on where you sit. And now she is a political appointee inside the Biden administration, not the chairman of the Federal Reserve or the president of the San Francisco Bank. She's suddenly okay 
with massive deficit spending just because the Fed has driven uh, the price signal and pricing in interest rates to zero. I'm concerned because you have to always plan financially for things reverting to what? The mean, reverting to the norm. And a 4.5% is the 10-year average uh, Treasury cost, 4.5% over the past 50, 60 years. So that's what we ought to be concerned about, not the fact that it's 1.6 or 1.7 today. So I believe she's naive on that point. Uh, She's representing her administration. And I'd finally say, look, this $1.9 trillion was not targeted. And I can tell you it's way too much uh, in the economy and runs the risk, as Larry Summers uh, said, uh, former Treasury Secretary, of overheating and overshooting uh, its target. Let me play for you a little bit of sound on that regarding inflation, because we actually have uh, that bite from uh, Fed Chairman Jay Powell on inflation. Take a listen to the sound on inflation Inflation from Fed Chair Jay Powell. Our best view is that these uh, the effect on inflation will be neither particularly large nor persistent. And part of that just is that we've been living in a world of strong disinflationary pressures around the world, really, for a quarter of a century. And we we don't think that uh, a one-time uh, uh, surge in spending leading to temporary price increases would disrupt that. However, we have the tools to deal with that. So, Representative Hill, it's so good to talk to you. It's Jeannie Zeno in, in New York, and I'm so glad, Kevin, you just played that because that was one thing I wanted to ask Representative Hill about, which is this argument that, that Secretary Powell keeps making, or uh, Powell keeps making, um, that inflation, while it may rise, he said today in the hearing, over the next year, it it won't stay, and we have the tools to handle it. And as you mentioned, Larry Summers, amongst others, has said there's about a one-third chance of significant inflation over the next few years. So when you hear Powell talk about these tools we have to handle it, what are those tools, and how confident are you that we can handle it? Well, if you were the Fed chairman in the late or mid-1960s, you might look back over the previous 30 years and say, gosh, I think inflation uh, is under control except for episodic periods. And we have the tools, and then we had the debilitating inflation of the 1970s that was brought to an abrupt end by Paul Volcker's shocking increase in interest rates, which threw the country into, at the time, the sharpest economic downturn since the Great Depression, which was the recession we had in the 82-83 time frame. So the tools are to raise interest rates. The tools are to sell bonds. The tools are uh, to contract monetary policy. And I think we need to make sure that market participants understand what those are. I recognize Jay Powell says that it could be transitory and not uh, result in high inflation expectations. But uh, I'm concerned about it, and I think we ought to have an open dialogue about it. We've never had the 10-year not yield about the nominal GDP. Well, the nominal GDP, as Kevin just points, might be 6 or 7% this year. We have a 10-year at 1.7. Traditionally, uh, you have a 2% real return on the 10-year. Well, you have a negative return today on the 10-year. So these are warning signs that we need to be very conscious about 
as we began to deal with the fiscal and monetary policy impacts of the pandemic. Well, it's so fascinating you say that. I was just talking to my father, who's retired over the weekend. He was an attorney, and he was reminding me that when he used to do a lot of house closings in, like, the 60s and the 70s, you'd sometimes have interest rates, you know, at around 20%, which was debilitating for people. Do you think part of the problem here is that this generation, we haven't lived through that many of my students, for instance, and this big generation, um, do you think that there's a problem because we don't remember quite clearly what that, how debilitating that inflation can be? Mm. It's possible. And that, and that, I don't remember. You know, Let good... me just, before you answer that, that's a great point because, you know, you think of, we've had two economic collapses, a pandemic, 9-11 and whatnot, but you're absolutely correct. I don't think, not that I'm speaking for an entire generation, but I, I don't think that people understand the risks of inflation. Go ahead, Congressman. I didn't mean to interrupt, but great point, Professor Zeno. No, the professor is right because that is Jay Powell's point about embedded high inflation expectations. We've been in a falling bond price, I mean, a rising bond price falling yield since 1980. So essentially almost 40 years, essentially the direction of bond prices has been higher, yields has been lower. And so there's this, and we've seen controlled inflation for the most part uh, since the 1980s. So I, I agree that that's one of the things in Jay Powell's argument favor. But I would simply argue history uh, can can make a fool out of all of us. And when you have a 26% increase in the M2 money supply, commodity prices rising, the 10-year yield out of sync with its historic norms, you have market signals that tell me that uh, you know inflation expectations are are increasing, and we ought to just be aware of that. And also, people should be aware of what the Fed's reaction to it if we did have, uh, say, in a few years, sustained inflation well above their 2% target. Congressman French Hill is with us. He is a Republican from Arkansas. Uh, he also was uh, the executive secretary to President George H.W. Bush's Economic Policy Council between 1991 and 1993, as well as as well as the deputy assistant secretary of the Treasury for corporate finance, uh, and the and and uh, has served uh, as the at the in the budget office as well. So he has a widespread uh, plethora of experience and someone who I've interviewed now. For many, many years, I feel. Uh, Congressman, I, I want to talk about the salt cap because that also came up. And I know a lot of folks in our audience uh, are interested in that. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen pledged to work with Congress to ease the $10,000 cap on state and local tax deductions. And that's been a key area of focus for New York and New Jersey lawmakers in recent years. What did we glean from that? I know that's not your neck of the woods, but uh, but but from from the salt cap perspective. Well, when the tax, job, tax Cuts and Jobs Act went into place under the law by President Trump, the idea was that you would try to make as many taxpayers as possible better off. They'd take the standard deduction. They would uh, have a lower rate or some combination thereof. The child tax credit was expanded. Every income bracket benefited from that. The tax code was more progressive. One of the nuances in that was a high-tax state where you have high state income taxes and high property taxes, which are normally deducted from your federal income taxes, that was capped. And, of course, that penalizes very high-tax states like New York or New Jersey. And yet many, many other Americans benefited, 
and, you know, hardworking, uh, some hardworking people, not at the higher income levels in New York and New Jersey, were okay, not great, but okay. So ever since that time, Speaker Pelosi, representing California, Chuck Schumer, representing New York, have been trying to reverse this and get their high-income taxpayers in New York and California essentially subsidized by the rest of the taxpayers in the country. Let's talk about taxes. Let's keep it on taxes and broaden this conversation uh, with Jeannie and Rick on infrastructure and the way that we're going to pay for infrastructure. And that's where really so much divide is. Democrats, as you know, Congressman, have, have proposed raising taxes, not just on billionaires and ultra-millionaires, but also on um, high-income earners who earn more than $400,000 annually to pay for a $3 trillion infrastructure package. Now, when I talk to folks like yourself, both on and offline, that is, I don't want to, I mean, well, is that a non-starter? <laughs> well, it's a good question. We've seen no plans on this. We don't know if infrastructure for the Democrats means urban mass transit and Green New Deal or if it really is an enhanced highway and road package that benefits the whole country, that's a, that's a mystery. On the tax raising, there seems to be no limit of ideas on raising revenue on the part of the Democrats. You have the 2% wealth tax promoted by Senator Warren. You have a securities transaction tax being proposed. You have uh, moving the corporate rate closer to 30% from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act competitive level. You have uh, moving the personal income tax rate up for incomes over $400,000. You have a tax on IRAs that are over a million dollars. It's a lot so of taxes. Yeah, and a carbon tax. We can keep going on. We have a, we have a mileage tax so that uh, you electric car. <laughs> I don't want to drive anybody off the road. Go ahead, Congressman. <laughs> no, no. I mean, people are, yeah, people are parking now, and, and they're trying to find a local pub to go into. So this is, <laughs> that sounds like a good – they'll probably tax that too soon. Uh, Congressman, yeah, I, know, yeah. I know there was actually a conversation even today uh, from Janet Yellen, your committee, uh, in response to some questions about – uh, whether or not these stimulus funds could be used to offset tax cuts at the state level. And I know that a lot of the conversation we've had is tax increases, but I'm curious whether you were convinced that the administration is going to come up with a plan that gives some of these states relief to be able to use the funds that they've received in the stimulus bill to be able to cut some taxes. Well, that's, a, that's an important point. Here in Arkansas, our General Assembly is meeting right now, and they're proposing to drop the personal rate by a couple of tenths of percent. This has been a phasing decline of our personal income tax rate uh, down significantly over Governor Hutchison's leadership. He was shocked to read reports that the, quote, American Rescue Package, close quote, prohibits him from making uh, tax cuts for Arkansas families. This is a state that has a balanced budget. This is a state whose tax revenues are up over the past year, not down. And so he found that insulting and ridiculous. So we'll see what Janet Yellen's response is on helping states that want to lower tax burdens for their citizens uh, are not prohibited from doing that. So, Representative Hill, let me just ask you about the politics of this infrastructure bill as we look at it. One thing we've heard is that there is a suggestion by Ron Klain and some others that uh, this may need to be split in many bills, and we know that they only have one more shot at reconciliation this year. So do you see any way in which Republicans cooperate on a portion that they can agree on when they know coming down the pike would be on reconciliation, potentially other parts, including social welfare, that they couldn't? 
couldn't agree on? Or do you think this thing is going to be dead on arrival for Republicans because they know that reconciliation is coming down the pike at some point? Well, Gina, you know, I don't know because I don't know what Speaker Pelosi's uh, ultimate strategy is. If you said, uh, could there be bipartisan support for uh, the five-year reauthorization of the highway bill with some additional, uh, you know, um, broadband and other infrastructure-type policies, there potentially could be. But if you're going to do a partisan approach with no Republican amendments, raise taxes across the board, on corporations and entrepreneurs and, and other ways uh, and impose essentially a social Green New Deal compact under the guise of an infrastructure bill, I think it'll be tough to get strong bipartisan support for that. Which is a, a nice way of saying it's going nowhere. Congressman Frenchill, all right, so what are you watching on Netflix? I am watching Turn because I'm a history nerd. What's, so. I'm a history nerd. Wait, what's Turn? Turn is the Washington spy ring from the Revolutionary War in New York. Oh, I love this. And, and you know, I've had so much fun. I'm the only member of my family to do so. There, Otherwise, I was competing last night with Aretha Franklin around my house. So, um, <laughs> Wait, this looks great. I just pulled it up on the, uh, not on the terminal, but on the... On the on the browser, turn Washington spies set in 1778. This period drama recounts the story of Abe Woodhull, an American cabbage farmer obliged to begin spying on the British enemy. I just finished McCullough's uh, 1776, Congressman. Are we reading that? You'll be ready. Yeah, You're I feel like I'm now ready. ready. To go. Congressman, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, for making the time for us. Appreciate it. That was Congressman French Hill. He's a Republican from uh, Arkansas. Rick. You know, you hear that, and, and I don't know. My assessment now is that infrastructure, it's even more. It's not just an uphill climb. It's like an uphill trek on Mount Everest to get a $3 trillion stimulus on an earth, $3 trillion on infrastructure through. Yeah, Kevin, I think you, you mentioned it. Um, the administration, uh, Chief of Staff Ron Klein, they're all trying to figure out what pieces of the Build Back Better uh, plan that uh, President Biden has yeah. might fit into a, getting some Republican votes. All right, coming up, we head out to Oregon. I'm Ke on the Oregon Trail. I'm Kevin Cirilli with the All-Star Policy Panel. Rick and Jeannie, this is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by the Bloomberg Politics contributor, Rick Davis and Jeannie Sean Zeno. Tom Keene, my friend and mentor who's on vacation this week, he always tells me to read everything. I go, Tom, that's impossible. He goes, read everything. Well, I watch everything too, Tom. And this weekend, I was watching Netflix 
and it's one of the most viewed documentaries in the country. It's called The Last Blockbuster. And I got all nostalgic. You know, I was thinking of my grand, my late grandmother, Mimi, who grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, before she moved to Delco. And we, she would take me to Blockbuster. Remember Blockbuster? And the, the blue and the yellow. And the, they always had the popcorn and the soda. Ugh. So then I watched this. It's so well done. And uh, we, got, we have our next guest, who is now the owner of the last Blockbuster the general manager, I apologize, the, the general manager of the last blockbuster in the country, in the world. At their peak, they had 9,000 stores. Now they just have one in Bend, Oregon. Take a listen to a sound on this incredible documentary. I cannot recommend it enough called The Last Blockbuster from Netflix. Here's a little bit about our next guest. Sandy is an amazing human being. Like the second or third time I ever met her in my life, she started treating me like family. Um, if you go to this blockbuster and they don't have the movie you want, Sandy will literally just go and buy it and then they will have it from then on. Sandy has absolutely been key in the last few years that she has been there because she's taken it to heart. She likes it and uh, uh, the people like her. And, and as the Oregonian, the local newspaper in Oregon, puts it about this documentary, one of the most intriguing aspects of the last blockbuster which is a uh, is that it is how well the filmmakers explain the economic factors that ultimately spell doom for video stores it's more complicated it turns out than netflix big footing video stores and driving them out of business corporate greed bad management decisions and one major missed opportunity are all involved well sandy you have hung on thank you so much for joining our program how have you been able to do it as a small business well, thank you for quite an introduction there. That was fantastic, and and it it's just so sweet. Um, all the wonderful feedback I've been getting. So thank you. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of it is hard work. Um, I wish I could say I was a one woman show. I am not. I have an amazing team of people working with me, um, and great owners that support all the decisions that I make, um, and wonderful community support too. You know, we at the end of the day, if customers aren't coming in to rent. No matter how hard I work, no matter how many times I run out and buy movies, it is not going to make a difference. We have to have the community support. So I think that's a big key in it. And then, of course, some, some pure dumb luck, too. I mean, who thought that we would ever outlast the Alaska stores? Um, I certainly didn't. And so I think um, it has a little bit of luck in there, too. Well, it's also fascinating, just as, as we talk frequently on this show about globalism, about capitalism, and just the dynamics. You call it luck, but there also are some economic currents here in which, what do you think makes Bend, Oregon economically uh, possible for it to have the last blockbuster? Well, I think that the tourism helps. I mean, we definitely have, I mean, it's a beautiful place. If you've never been to Bend, it's just an absolutely beautiful place. Um, but, you know, we really do support local here. It's really important to our um, I don't know, to our day-to-day -day lives. We have a lot of small local businesses, and we really rally behind them and try to keep them open. And that's something I'm very proud to be a part of the Bend community for that reason. Um, but you're right. I mean, things always ebb and flow. And, you know, I know we, I was talking earlier to somebody about vinyl records and how they're kind of coming, you know, having a little bit of a nostalgic comeback as well. And, and I think that, you know, people, especially during COVID, yep. really got tired of sitting at home. And I, I think that, you know, the last year, 
you know, it was really challenging for small businesses. And, and we certainly felt those um, challenges, especially when movies weren't being produced and, and being put into the theater. I mean, that's a huge thing for us. I mean, if there's no movies coming out, we don't have movies to buy on Tuesday to bring here for our customers. So we had to adapt and change and, and come up with some different game plans for what we're going to offer, you know, our customers. And, and you know, it, it definitely comes and goes. And, and everything. We're, we're very grateful for the amount of nostalgia that people feel for Blockbuster and the coverage that we get from news outlets and, you know, um, different people like you that, that really care enough to have us on your program. And, you know, those kind of things definitely help. But but it, it, people are tired of sitting at home. People are tired of those algorithms and going through Netflix for the, you know, 100th time or Prime Video or whatever you have. And people want that social interaction. So I think that that's something that we still offer. Sandy, it's so good to talk to you. This is Jeannie Shanzano in New York, and I, too, worked at a Blockbuster. So I, <laughs> when Kevin Cirilli said, you awesome. must see this, I, I watched it. It was actually my first job um, ever. Wow. Um, and when I watched it, I it, incredibly nostalgic, and you were so moving in it. And I just oh, wanted to you. ask you, um, you mentioned uh, the, the difficulties um, that small businesses have faced. We've heard statistics, 400,000 shut down during COVID. And you mentioned what a small business community there is in, in Bend. How have you guys worked together to get through this uh, difficult time? And how do you see coming out of it, particularly if, for instance, you stop being able to, you know, buy DVDs and videos if they're not made going forward? Are you going to diversify or how is this going to work? You know, I really don't know the answer to that. I wish that I had, I, I knew uh, what was going to happen. And I think it's all about just adjusting. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen after the Redbox came out. We didn't know what was going to happen after streaming services took, you know, took over the entertainment world. Um, and it's just all about adapting. You know, we knew we couldn't um, compete with those things. We know that we can't, we have no control over what's happening in Hollywood we have no control over, you know, the decisions that they make as far as how they're, you know, getting the movies out to customers. Um, so we just have to kind of roll with the punches. And I'm not really sure um, what we do we would do if they stopped making DVDs altogether. I, I really have a hard time believing that that's going to happen anytime soon. I, I definitely think it's probably going to be down the road. Um, but we're just going to keep doing what we're doing for now and, and just kind of, you know, feel it out and see what happens. Hey, this is Rick Davis in Washington. Thanks so much for being on. And I, I too, enjoyed the uh, documentary. And I spent a lot of time, I didn't ever work in a blockbuster, but my <laughs> kids spent a lot of time browsing the aisles. Uh, and I'm sure, it, it, like like everyone I'd ever been in, it's a very family-friendly place. I, I saw how you uh, became just a uh, an institution in the community, and I think that's great. And that's part of my question is... Uh, how have you seen the customer choices over time? I mean, you've gone through different uh, technologies, you know, the VHS yeah. and then the DVDs, but have you seen customer uh, choices change significantly? I mean, I, I assume it's a, you're, you're like a psychologist. You probably sit there and think every time someone <laughs> walks in, hmm, I wonder what movie that person's going to come up with. You know, I learned a long time ago not to do that because I'm almost <laughs> always wrong. Um, you know, when you have the, the sweet little lady grandma coming in and renting Ted, you're kind of like, oh, you know, that's not, Beware. not what you want. And she's like, oh, no, I know exactly what it is. So, no, I, I learned a long time ago not to do that. Um, you know, it, it does it, with everything. It ebbs and flows. But I think that especially right now, people are really 
just going for those comedies. They're really wanting those lighthearted things that make them feel good. And, I mean, we all know, we all love movies, and you guys have fond memories of going to Blockbuster or, you know, Family Home Video or whatever your video store was in your community. Movies are an escape. And right now there are so many crazy things. I mean, we had the, the stuff yesterday in Colorado, and, you know, there's so much craziness going on in the world that movies are a wonderful escape. And I think that um, it's amazing and great that we still have the opportunity to, to bring that to people and, and bring a smile. So comedies are definitely out there, but it's also Academy Award season. So we have a, a section dedicated right now to the old classic Academy Award winners and the Oscar winners and, and different things, you know, the actors and, and different things out on the floor. And, and people love that. And I think that those are the kind of things that we try to do to remind people, hey, we're not getting new releases in, but don't forget these wonderful movies are out there. So um, those are just things that, that we do. You know, I think you've, you're really on to something about uh, comparing Blockbuster to, uh, to, to, to vinyl records. Because I go into a vinyl record store downtown, and I'll, you know, and it's an escape. It's an experience, right? And I think yeah. that experience of just going in, and it's like going into a library or a museum in, in some ways, different feel. But, you know, in Asia, I was talking with a, a friend out on the West Coast recently, and in Asia, they have these virtual reality houses. And, and in D.C., they just launched Art Tech House, it's called, and it's immersive journalism. It's a, a buzzword that we hear about in my industry, immersive experiences. And I think there's something there, Sandy, about going to a place where storytelling is both nostalgic and accessible in order mm-hmm. to access that. Would you agree? No, I do agree. And and it's just, I mean, it's been a part of our culture for as long as we've been around. Storytelling is the most important part, and that's the thing that people gravitate towards. I mean, it doesn't matter what the story is. I mean, you could be listening to your grandparents. You could be listening to your best friend. You could be listening to, you know, a stranger talking about something that they're passionate about. And that's something that people really enjoy and love. And, and yeah, I, I'm a good storyteller. <laughs> Sandy Harding, you are an amazing storyteller, and I deeply, (laughs) deeply appreciate you coming on uh, to take the time today. I know you've had a ton of interviews, but truly a treat for me. What's your favorite movie? Quickly. (laughs) The Shining. Uh, And and that's funny because I always tell everybody the same thing, but the kids will tell you I have it on VHS in my office. Good for you. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Mine's Rudy. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.